wonder if you've ever considered how dangerous it is to read God's Word, how dangerous to your own soul it can be to read God's Word. It sounds funny, doesn't it? You probably haven't considered that. Well, consider it now. If you don't know your blind spots, if you don't know what you're importing into the Word, it can become implicitly a dangerous place. There's a, there's a teaching technique in the science of preaching called text and framework, where you have the text, and that's the Bible, but then there's your own framework that you might bring to the table unknowingly or knowingly. And what, it, what this technique aims to expose is the reality that all of us have frameworks that we bring to the table. And sometimes we unknowingly bring a framework from our lives and place it on the Bible, or sometimes we knowingly do that, impress it on the Bible, rather than allowing the Bible on its own to set the agenda and to teach us the truth that it does. Whether it's a theological inclination or a political desire or a therapeutic understanding or even cultural or social frameworks, we all have some assumptions that we then place on top of the Bible, our own experiences, our own training, our own desires emerge when we sit down and and study a text. And when our reading of the text challenges our framework, we need to decide which will take priority. We need to be aware of these frameworks or these biases because We must let the text be sovereign over our lives. Rather than making it say what we want it to say, we must hear it for what it says on its own. So, friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I wonder if you view what we do here as exactly that. We have this ancient text that we love, but then do you see us as just kind of importing things from our experience or past onto this text? And to where we, we use it like a weapon, maybe against you or maybe against people or maybe just we want to get away with whatever process we want to get away with. Do you see us doing that? Hopefully not. What Christians are told to believe from the Bible is that we depend on, on God's Spirit to shape us and fashion us according to the Scripture alone. And I think that's one of the issues that is facing uh, the text uh, that I'll be preaching from in this passage this morning. I think that's, I think that's the issue that this church of Ephesus in the, within the first letter of Timothy is facing. There, there are false teachers from within the church teaching unsound doctrine and misusing the Old Testament law in order to lord it over people's lives. They're, they're adding things to the text. They're taking away things from the text, but uh, they're misusing the text in such a way that they're, they're importing a, a framework that's not found in the text in order to teach people according to what they want. And here's the reason I bring this up. I wonder how many of you may be fostering an agenda when you read the Bible. We all need to ask this of ourselves. Maybe you've had experiences in your life that have shaped you, colored your vision of the way you see things. And sometimes when you read your Bible, you're not seeing what's there because you have blinders or experiences concealing scriptures based on its truth. Maybe you've had past experiences with sexual promiscuity and immorality. So when you, when you read the Bible's limitation on, on sexual behavior, you, you might be prone to think, it doesn't really, it surely doesn't say that. Maybe you grew up in, God forbid, an abusive home. So when you read about gender roles within a Christian home, you think, oh, I, it can't really mean that. I've, I've felt something different. 
Maybe you live or work in a context in which it's actually socially damaging to your reputation to say that, that Jesus is the only way to salvation. So when it says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, nobody comes to the Father except through me. And when someone looks at you at the office right in your eyes and says, do you really think that? Are you really saying I'm outside of that? You might be prone to say, well, I mean, really what's important is that, you know, we believe in something. You believe in something, I believe in something. That's what really matters, right? Faith. But in reality, the Bible doesn't need our frameworks to be just as eternally true as it already is. Our job as, as believers in Christ is to absorb all that it says, to be shaped by what it teaches, and to then take that and disciple or teach others with it. And for all of us, the, the common temptation is to bend the Bible towards our own agendas. And when we bend the Scriptures toward our ways, that's what the Apostle Paul calls suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. It's, it's biblical distortion. It's the kind of willfulness which Paul addresses in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. What, does, what Paul does in this passage as he's instructing this fellow elder in the faith to then stay within that church to teach them sound doctrine and to correct those who are in error, what he's doing here is he's laboring to show that God's words, they're good. And the problem is readers of the Bible who distort the Bible or abuse the Bible. And in reality, he's, he's saying, hey, the people there, they, they can actually be the problem, not the Bible. So in these four verses, Paul shows that the law is good. The law has a particular audience in mind, and it especially matters for you and for me today. So that'll, that'll be the outline of what I want to go through. The, i go through a couple of points that are provided on the outline, on the back of the bulletin, hopefully you got on your way in. But the, the first one is Paul arguing that the law is good. And you might be thinking, why? is the law. Sounds like Old Testament. Why is the law good? We see here in verse 8 the answer to this. Look at verse 8 of 1 Timothy 1. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The law of God, like the, you could think of it the rest of Scripture, the Bible in total, has a, has a certain quality about it. You might, if you've ever been part of a Christian tradition where they begin the service by holding the Bible above their head and walking it down the center aisle, they're saying, they're communicating something about what this book or this text or these scriptures are. The Bible on its own is morally, ethically, spiritually good, not mixed with errors. But then he adds a, Paul here adds a conditional phrase. Look, look at the text. Look at the end of verse 8. It says, if, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now, what I'd like to give you is a couple of observations on, on this verse. I want to hover around, circle around as much as I can, trying to unpack it a little bit because this verse is so important for us. My, my proposition is from the text, the law is good if it's used lawfully, not only because Paul says that, but we see the rest of Scripture saying that. But I want, to, I want to give you five quick things. The first one is that Paul is talking about the reading of Scripture. So let's not be confused at, at what what characters are on the stage here? Paul's talking about the reading of Scripture. You and I understanding Scripture. You waking up early. And boy, wasn't this morning very early at whatever time you woke up. It took me like 15 minutes to figure out like, it's dark outside. What is happening? 
And then if you're really spiritual, right, you go straight to the Word. Or if you're spiritual at the end of the day, you go to the Word. You, you want to read the Word to understand the Lord. That's what he's talking about here. Reading the Word to understand God. Paul's appeal to the Scripture is not some vague, moral, mystical law in the past. He's not talking about myths or genealogies. He's talking about what you can concre- concretely see in the Scriptures. He has all of Moses' writings in view when he says the law. Maybe your, maybe your translation has law with a, cop, with a capital L at the beginning, meaning Genesis to Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Scriptures are called the law. That's what he's talking about. Not just the commands that we see within those books, but he's talking about Genesis to Deuteronomy. He's talking about the understanding of the entirety of Scripture. And he's saying it's good. The second thing that he's doing is Paul's, he's contrasting a valid reading strategy of Scripture and an invalid reading of Scripture. So a valid versus invalid reading of Scripture. The problem isn't with the Scripture, but Paul, Paul's, Paul views the law as completely breathed out by God. He says in another letter in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says that all of God's Word is breathed out by God. Paul believes Moses' law is holy righteous and good. This is what he says in Romans chapter 7, another book that he wrote. But just because Scripture is good and holy, that doesn't mean that all interpretations are good and holy. Some interpretations are good, and unfortunately, some interpretations of the Scriptures are bad, done by man. Paul and the apostles are reading the law lawfully. It's why you and I can trust how they are exposing God's gospel to us and in many ways expositing God's law to us. We saw Jesus do that years ago in the Sermon on the Mount. What was he doing? He was teaching the law because it was good, and he was giving us a correct way of understanding God's Word. The false teachers are not reading the law lawfully, so he contrasts right versus wrong. And theologically, this, this is the pursuit of a practice called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, where you might ask someone, you take this you take this text, and it has 66 different books, and some of them are at different times and written by different men. So how do you, how do you understand all of it as one unified thing? It's called hermeneutics, a, a right reading of God's Word. It's a, it's a wonderful pursuit that hopefully we're doing every day. A third thing that Paul says is Paul says that the proper way to read the text is actually implied by the nature of the text itself. A proper way to read the text is implied by the nature of the text itself. The proper way to read the Bible is implied by the Bible. Another way to put this is Paul says that the Bible tells us how to read the Bible. Now, some translations in verse 8 say that the law, that the law is good if it's used properly, which is fine, or it might use the word appropriately. The law is good as long as it's used appropriately or properly. And I, I think the aim of those translations is pointing out that Paul is distinguishing between appropriate and inappropriate interpretations, and that's true. But those words don't go far enough. I'm thankful that the passage that we had read says that the law is good if the law is read lawfully, and that's true. Those words don't go far enough unless we understand that the word lawfully, and I don't mean to like mansplain here, but the word lawfully comes from the word law. He combines these two things. You, you are dependent on understanding how to read the Bible singularly according to the Bible. I'd imagine if you ever came over to my house and you were going to help me with a, with a handyman project, um, you might look at the tools that I have in my garage, and I would look at you, 
and then look at the tools that I have in my garage, and I'd probably say something like, I really need you to use these tools for me to do this handyman project. Like, I actually need you to import yourself into my issue so that I can fix a leaky something. I need you to take over here. So I need something from the outside to actually help me within the inside. That's not how the Bible says that we should read and interpret the Bible. The, the Bible says that we should interpret the Bible according to the nature of the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures. We see the Scriptures are interpreting one another, explaining one another. You might think of this as cross-references where like something's being talked about here. Oh, that's not the first time that's ever been talked about. It's also being talked about over here. Where we understand, we interpret the Bible by the very nature of the Bible, not by nature of something else, but by biblical terms and biblical phrases and biblical patterns. The fourth thing that he does here is uh, he says that the inspiration of Scripture actually puts the focus on the author's intention. So whenever you try to understand the Bible, you, you, you might pursue the, the quick practice of what's called authorial intent. What did Moses mean to convey when he conveyed those words? What did Matthew mean to convey about Jesus when he wrote down those words for us? It's, it's helpful in many ways to think about it, put ourselves in their shoes What were they trying to teach us? You can see how it can become very dangerous by, I might say, you know, Moses lived a long time ago and like was in a totally different part of the world. So I'm going to, I'm going to take his words. They seem okay, but I'm going to interpret them through, through my lens. I'm going to interpret them through my experience. When he's talking about this, "Ah, it's kind of, I don't have a goat, so I'm not going to think about that. But in reality, the inspiration of Scripture actually puts the focus on the author's intention. We all know that God is the ultimate author of Scripture. Paul says this. But God uses men supernaturally to pen Scripture. Moses, in this case, the author of the law, uh, his works, though they are divinely inspired, they are humanly crafted with particular intention. One commentator said that Paul has a concern to use Paul has a concern to use law as law, as it's meant to be used as law, rather than as a source of speculative thinking. Or to use the law lawfully means to read it as it's meant to be read. Well, meant by whom? Well, certainly meant by God, but also meant by God as he influences the authors of Scripture. This changes the understanding of of some of the things that fascinate us or terrify us. Like, does it change the perspective of the book of Revelation, if you know that it was given to the church to encourage the church? There's a lot of stuff in that book that'll blow our minds, but if it's meant to give us an encouragement, oh, that, that'll change the way we, we memorize those passages and read that word. Or to think about, think about the Israelites wandering in the desert. They wandered for so long, and they might be feeling the reality that, you know what, just give up. And then what Moses gave them is a testimony of God not only making everything, but also drawing them from bondage to freedom. You think about how encouraging the intention of what Moses was saying there. So the inspiration of Scripture actually puts the focus on the author's intention, supernaturally governed by God Himself. Paul says elsewhere that the Holy Spirit ensures total truthfulness of what the authors write and of what the authors conveyed to intend and mean. So we aim to know what God's men said through the text they wrote, and I think it's part of what Paul means to use the law lawfully. Paul, fifthly, finally here, draws a line between speculation and meaning. 
did Jesus, or did Jesus, did you, you are not him, did you notice it says that these guys are fixated, these teachers in the verses above, these, these men are fixated on things like myths and genealogies. I mean, they, they, are, they are giving themselves over to speculation rather for, than furthering the administration of God. It says there in verse 4, Paul draws a line between speculation and a text meaning. This is a strategy of Bible reading, and that strategy is seeking to know what the Bible says. Tell me what it means. Every now and then I'll see on some type of social media, typically Instagram, where someone says, shouldn't it teach us something that Jesus asked more questions than gave answers to? And that's cute. And you kind of understand what they're meaning. Like, we should ask questions too. We should ask questions, but we should seek answers. Like, it's one thing to constantly be asking questions, and it's another thing to submit ourselves to the text and say, what does it say? What does he mean? I mean, people who say that, they say, oh, isn't it something that Jesus asked more questions? And it's like, yes, but he did demand certain things like repentance and faith and come only to me and don't pursue false teaching in this text case. Now, what I'm saying here with these five observations is that we should pause and think about how you and I read the Bible. I think it might be a good thing for you on the drive home if you came alone or with someone else to really ask the, the humbling question, how do, how do I read the Bible and Why? And is there something to that that I'm importing onto the Bible? We should read the Bible to seek truth about God through the author's intent and communicating God's truth to us. So using the law lawfully means that we read it in a way that is agreeable to God. God is the ultimate authority who inspired these human authors. So here's the takeaway from this. Christian, do you seek to pursue the Scripture's instruction on its own terms? Or do you seek to use the Scriptures to determine what you want it to mean? How do you know what it says? Who could you talk to about the right meaning of the text? We too often read the Bible not to hear what God is saying, but to confirm our own biases. What Paul says that when we do that, the problem is not the Scripture, but the problem is us. We're not to judge the Scripture, but the Scriptures are to be judges of us. Psalm 119 verse 36 says, "'Incline my heart to your testimonies.'" and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. This should change the way that you and I pray to grow in Christ, that we would be overwhelmed by the truth of the word, even if, even if it means that we break away from preconceived notions of life around us. We should say things like, Father, don't let anything in me keep me from seeing you as you are as you've given yourself over to us in your word. Father, keep me from distorting what's true. Keep me within your statutes, and may I learn them. Why? Because the word says that the law is very good. Now, second, uh, the law is good, but who's the law for? That's really kind of the, the tension of this text. Who is it for? You know, you might look at the Old Testament and go, that's not for me. That's like history. Don't care. Not Jewish. Don't need to know any of that kind of stuff. Who's the law for? Well, look at verses 9 through 10 of the text. It says, knowing this, that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and godless, for those who kill their fathers and 
or mothers, for murderers or sexually immoral persons or homosexuals, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. These verses tell us who the law is for. It's not for righteous people, meaning it's for us. It's for people who are lawless. It's for people who are sinful. It's not for people who already know how to act. It's for people who don't know how to act. In other words, the law is there to instruct unrighteous, ungodly people to tell sinners how to tell the difference between good and evil. Paul goes from, I think what's interesting here is the the first, where are we, verse 9, first eight verses, he's kind of talking about the law generally. And then he starts using very specific words here, jarring words, words like people who kill their parents. That jumped out and got really specific. Who here has done it? Paul goes from generic. Don't answer. Paul here has gone from generic to specific. And, and what he actually does here is he, he, is he kind of gives a framework of what the Ten Commandments teach and what the Ten Commandments show. In verses 9 through 10, Paul basically gives you a summary of the Ten Commandments. If you look at these series of parallel terms, the law is for, in in verse 9, the lawless and rebellious, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane. Friend, that covers the first four commandments. Then notice how he picks up the fifth commandment, those who kill their fathers and mothers, the ultimate expression of not honoring your father and mother. And he runs you through the ninth commandment. He doesn't outline the tenth commandment, though some see some of these things actually talking about what's talked about in the tenth commandment, taking things that don't belong there. But he covers nine of the ten commandments here in verses nine and ten. And he basically says, look, Ephesus, why would God have needed to write down those laws and give them to people, the people of God through Moses, unless we were sinners and needed to be restrained from our sins? Warning lights, guardrails, rules, commands in how to live. And he basically says, look, this is here for you. Adam had the law written on his heart. Paul says that even as fallen human beings, we all know right from wrong, and we all know that God is going to bring judgment. So why did the law need to be written down? Well, one way to understand why the law was given to God's people and why the law is still to be used by you and I today is to restrain us from our natural desire to sin or to restrain sin. So it can't be the answer to the problem of sin. It's there because of the problem of sin. Not as the final answer to the problem of sin. The final answer to the problem of sin is the actual gospel itself. And I think what these false teachers were doing is actually making the law the answer to people's sins rather than rightly using the law, rightly interpreting the law, rightfully understanding the scriptures and saying these are, these are shots across the bow of the judgment that is deserved by sinful people. And you know who you are, unrighteous people who need the law. The final answer to the problem of sin is the gospel. And, and what ushers us into that understanding is the law itself. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ in his life and death and resurrection on our behalf and our embrace of that by faith. That's the good news that will deal with the sin that we all need to be brought awareness of. But the law, no, the law is there because of the problem, to expose the problem. It's there to, rest- to restrain us from sin. Paul is speaking of what the reformers 500 years ago called the first use of the law. What is the first, a lot of uses of the law, but what's the first use of the law? To restrain our own sin. He's not saying 
everything that's there to say about the law, but he's just pointing out that these teachers come in and say, if you want to be righteous with God, the way to be righteous with God is by obeying these moral laws. If you obey these moral laws, then you'll be right with God. But Paul wants us to know that, anything, that anybody who can preach that doesn't know themselves what the point of the law is altogether. He says that in the verse before. I told you last week how, how verse 7 is like an intro to verse 8. He's basically saying, these people who think they understand the law, they don't know what they're talking about. If they rightly understood the law, they would recognize it's for the unrighteous to be exposed to their sins. I have one friend who gives an illustration on this text in this account, talking about how uh, there are certain rules that he has for his children when it's time to pray in church. Because what are are, uh, little children really good at when it's time to pray? A lot. Everything. They poke each other. They go off the rails. All of a sudden, they start leaving. And you're like, why? Why? Out of all times in the world did you pick to do this during holy prayer? Right? So you might make a rule for your kid to close your hands together. Close your eyes. Don't look around. Close your eyes. I have another friend who they, they've got six kids, and you can imagine the mayhem of all of these six kids sitting on the front row. They all sit up in the front, and they've got rules. You get one instrument to write with or color with, and you get one piece of paper. That's it. My parents were very clever when I was a kid in that I talked all the time, and they, they realized subtly that I use my hands a lot when I talk. So whenever they were done with me, they would say, sit on your hands, and I wouldn't talk anymore. One, one time they made me put my hands on the roof of the car as, you know, it's fine, I'm okay, I don't have issues, but why are these... <laughs> Uh, why are they? <laughs> I don't. Why, why, do, why do some of these parents have, have little rules for their little kids? And in reality, you might think that that dad not giving that same rule to his wife. You know, that wife may say during time of prayer, as some couples do, totally agree if you do, you might hold hands when you pray together. And can you imagine that husband looking over at his wife and going, don't do that? Or then he might notice that she's looking at him and he goes, no, eyes shut. That'd be It'd be bizarre. Why? Because, well, that, hopefully that wife can control herself spiritually in prayer, whereas your five-year-old maybe not. Who is the law for? The unrighteous who can't control themselves. Who are we when given fully over to our flesh? We are in need. We are in need of the Lord telling us what is good and wrong, what is right and holy. So, friend, here's the point for us today. This was written in the context of false teachers mistreating and misusing Scripture for selfish gain. But like then, today, true biblical teaching does not mistake the nature of the law, meaning what it is, and the use of the law, who it's for. The law serves to restrain us from sin. The law convicts us of our sin. And and in the heart of the Christian, who has been changed by the grace of God, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, justified by God's grace, and is being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, the law serves as a guide, as a leader. It shows us what true righteousness looks like. Ultimately, the, the law drives us It guides us and it drives us in a certain direction, and that's the person of Christ. The Messiah as the only one who can save us from the penalty of us actually breaking the law. More laws won't ultimately save us. Only one can. And this is what the law does. It drives us there. Now, for you, does your reading of the law of Scripture point you to Christ? Does your reading of the law or of totality of Scripture, does your reading of the Bible make you necessarily search 
or try for more things to do in order to satisfy God or maybe make your life better? Or does it drive you to Christ? The law cannot save you. And if it drives you anywhere but to Christ, you're, Paul would say, you're misreading the law. And these teachers don't understand that. And so Paul points out here how false teaching misunderstands the nature and the use of the law. But thirdly here we have in verse 11, we actually have the explanation of, of why all this matters to you. Why does the law matter to you? The law doesn't undermine or weaken the gospel. The, the law doesn't undermine or weaken the gospel. In verse 11, he explains to us how the gospel itself is the measure of soundness in all teaching. Look at the end of verse 10. It says, And whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the gospel, the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Sound teaching is a word that Paul will use over and over again in these pastoral epistles. So 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Sound teaching is a, a phrase, or the sound is a word that he'll use over and over again. It's a phrase that reminds us that true biblical teaching leads to spiritual health. Sound doctrine. You want to grow in Christ? Know the word. Immerse yourself into what God has given you. I find it so strange. When I'm inclined, I'm not using you as an example, when I'm inclined to always want something else as an additive to Holy Scripture whenever I want to grow more. He's really given us all that we need. I'm on a text thread with uh, 12 guys, and all of us are in ministry, and we all at one point or another worked with each other. So it's like kind of this fun, unique, random fraternity. And one of the things, what do guys love doing when, when they're around each other? They love picking on each other. It's, it's like our own love language is just poking at each other. And so every now and then, in good faith, one of us will say, hey, does anyone have a good resource on the gospel and addiction? I'm, I'm working through with someone. Does anyone have an example of good children curriculum that your church uses or you would recommend or something? And, and, and there's always one of us, there's always one of us who will say, yeah, I've got a good resource. It's the Bible. And you're like, I know, I know. Anyone else have a good resource other than the Bible that, and then someone will always say, oh, is God's holy word not good enough for you to instruct your children in the Lord? Is it not good enough for you to preach a funeral sermon? Is it not good enough for you? And, and it's like, guys, I'm about to lose it right now. I just want some curriculum for VBS. That's all I want. Go away. But that's how we, that's how we ingest, talk to each other, because at our root, we know that God's word is supremely and singularly good. And the law tells us that. All right, so he says in verse 11 that we should be built up by the gospel. And, and he tells us that this is what sound teaching looks like. He tells us that, it's, that sound teaching is teaching according to the gospel. He's saying that sound teaching is always in accordance with, aligning with the good news that displays God's glory. Because it is that message alone that reveals God in all of the fullness of His blessings. Everybody knows that there is a right and a wrong no matter how much we want to deny it in our own practice. No matter how much we practice out of accordance with that fundamental reality, there's not a human being on the planet that doesn't know that there is a right and a wrong and an impending judgment on those penalties. That's what Romans 1 teaches us. Romans 1 says that every human being on the planet knows right from wrong 
and knows that God will ultimately judge. It's the gift of the conscience. The gospel, though, doesn't tell me that. The law tells me that. And the gospel then shows us the solution for the problem that we have. What the gospel tells us is not simply that there is a just God, but that there is a merciful God. And that's something that we learn only in the gospel, that there's a merciful God who will show us grace and will show grace to those who repent and trust in His own Son for the forgiveness of their sins. And and even though He is just in all of His judgments, He'll show mercy to those who flee from their sin to Christ alone. You see, the gospel is the essence of the saving good news about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, especially in His death and in His resurrection. And what that does for our sin and how it answers to our need from our sin for forgiveness is it gives us the understanding of forgiveness and cleansing. And Paul is saying that the gospel itself is the measure of soundness in all teaching. If someone comes in and says, obey the law and God will save you, Paul says that person shows that they do not know what they're talking about. But when someone comes in and says, trust in Christ alone for salvation as he offered you in the gospel, then live as only someone who's been freed from the power of sin and then live in accordance with God's good word, that person understands both law and gospel. That's one Paul is saying to listen to. Remember how Paul puts it in the book of Ephesians. He says that you were saved by grace through faith and not of yourselves. It was a gift of God. But he goes on to say that you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. So it's not doing away with the law altogether, but understanding what the law was intended for. You were not saved by good works. You were not saved by your law keeping, but you were saved by grace through faith, even that faith that was a gift of God. But you were created anew, You were regenerated. You were made a new creature. For what reason? For what purpose? So that you would do well and do good. Remember when the law was given to the the people of God, it wasn't before they were freed from bondage. They were brought out of Egypt, placed on the shore, and then given a way to live toward righteousness. Now, they would stumble again and again. None of us live perfectly in a Ten Commandment way or in the law of Christ way, but we have been saved to do good for God's glory so that we'd be doing good works. And how do we know what good works are? Well, the words of God tell us, the law of God tells us. Now, when, uh, I'll conclude with this, a, a biblical illustration of someone understanding the freedom that, God, that God's forgiveness gives from the law is actually the story of the writer of this book altogether. The writer of 1 Timothy is the Apostle Paul. Before his conversion, Paul was a zealous law keeper, a Pharisee, who strictly adhered to the Jewish law and used it to persecute these new Christians on the scene. However, he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, where Paul was transformed and became one of the greatest then teachers and evangelists in all of human history. In his letters, like one here, and like if you're using a copy of the Bible, words to the left and words to the right of these books, in his letters, Paul frequently emphasized the freedom and forgiveness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ as opposed to adherence to the law. He even says in, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, he writes, "'Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ.'" 
So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. We understand here that Paul understood that the law could not save us from sin and that only through faith in Jesus could we be forgiven and made right before God. This realization gave him even, even more freedom than he already had, even more joy than he already had. And he spent the rest of his life spreading the message of salvation through faith in Christ. So it's not the law that saves you and makes you right with God, but it is that you are saved in order that you can express what you were meant to be as the image of God by keeping the law of God. And this is what the gospel teaches. Sound teaching is always in accordance with the good news that displays God's glory because that message alone reveals God in all the fullness of his blessedness. Paul wants Timothy to know that. Why? Because people in this particular church were confused about the law that this church was given. People were taking myths and genealogies, a framework, if you could say, speculation, and placing it on top of the text. And this seems like it happens in every kind of Christian community. There are people who are suggesting that we need to use the law in order to justify ourselves before God. They'll say things like, if we obey, we'll be declared right with God. And the Apostle Paul is saying, anybody who says that doesn't know what they're talking about, doesn't understand their sin, doesn't understand God's gospel. Because if I am the solution to my problem of my unrighteousness, well, then I really do have a big problem. Because what the scriptures say is that the law allows us to really see ourselves and enjoy the forgiveness of Christ altogether. So it's Jesus keeping the law. It's Jesus having pure righteousness. It's Jesus having a life that can only be measured by true holiness. It's Jesus paying the penalty for my sin that makes me right before God and frees me then to live in accordance with the guidance of God's law and so that God's grace takes priority over my faithfulness. And if we don't understand that, then we haven't understood yet the freeness of the mercy of God. Friends, may it be our continual prayer to understand His truth as it guides us and keeps us. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that you have given us from your word and the continual instruction that you guide us by your spirit to understand. We pray that you would lift up our hearts to see you as the only object of what we can believe in for joy and love and happiness. God, may you be our, the object of our affection. We pray that your spirit will strengthen us to this end. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.